Hello everyone. Do you like reading? Do you like walking? Do you like thinking about your life? Then we have got something for you. Our Common Ground Pilgrimages are going to be announcing our slate of fall and winter 2020 pilgrimages on March 2nd. So if you sign up for our newsletter at readingandwalkingwith.com, you will be the first to know when registration launches and only people on our newsletter will get 30 minutes early registration access and it's first come first serve. So signing up first might mean the difference between getting a spot or not. There's less than 20 spots on each pilgrimage and one of them might be involving me and a book that we all love. So you're talking about you leading a pilgrimage with he's just not that into you? A hundred percent, yeah. <laughs> oh my God, I'm there. So that's readingandwalkingwith.com. Sign up to the newsletter. Be the first to know about our pilgrimages this year. Chapter 6. Talons and Tea Leaves When Harry, Ron, and Hermione entered the Great Hall for breakfast the next day... The first thing they saw was Draco Malfoy, who seemed to be entertaining a large group of Slytherins with a very funny story. As they passed, Malfoy did a ridiculous impression of a swooning fit. I'm Casper Terkyle. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. So growing up, my parents had these great stories about these friends of theirs, Simon and Susan. They had all these great stories about things that they used to do with Simon and Susan. Simon and Susan and they were married on the same weekend, and they met after, and it turns out that they had all these crazy things in common, and they were friends forever, whatever. One day, I asked my parents why I've never met Simon and Susan, and my mom was like, well, they don't talk to us anymore, and I was like, why? And she was like, I have no idea. I reached out a few times, and they just stopped talking to us. And I have no idea what happened. Whoa. So five or six years ago, my mom and I are on the phone chatting. And she says, you'll never guess who called me. She said, Susan, we are having dinner with them Saturday night. She calls me on Sunday and she tells me we had the best time. We laughed. It was so good to see them. You'll never guess why I haven't heard from them in 30 years. Tell me. She said, Apparently, around 30 years ago, we were supposed to go over to their house for a party, and I called at the last minute and said that I wasn't feeling well and that we weren't going to make it, and it was my responsibility to bring jelly beans to the party. And it offended Susan that I canceled, but what really offended her is that we didn't even offer that dad bring the jelly beans to the party. She was deeply offended by this, and so she just cut off my mom. Then 30 years later, Susan decides that she has forgiven my mom. And so for the last five years or so, Susan and Simon and my parents have become really good friends again. And this story just reminds me of the fact that forgiveness is not for the person who you are forgiving. It is for the forgiver. My mom, I'm sure, would have apologized if she would have known what she had done wrong. And this could have all been fixed. But Until Susan was ready to forgive my mom, my mom could have apologized a million times, and it doesn't matter. Whenever any of us have to forgive, we have to remember that it's about us. It's not even about the other person. And I'm excited to read this chapter through the theme of forgiveness because I think we see opportunities for forgiveness and missed opportunities for forgiveness all throughout this chapter. Whoa. 
30 years. Jelly beans. Jelly beans. Wow. I mean, it reminds me of that saying that, you know, not forgiving someone is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. You know, I feel bad for Susan for the many years of like jelly bean poison that she had to endure. That's a great quote. I'd never heard of that. It's good, right? Yeah. Not forgiving someone is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. Ooh. Before we dive into that theme, let's do our 30-second recap. Are you ready? Bring it on. On your mark. Get set. Go. So Harry, Ron, and Hermione have to go to the divination classroom, which is up in the North Tower, and they meet Sir Cadogan, Cadogan, who, you know, challenges them to a duel and helps them find it. And there's this trapdoor, and they're like, how do we get in? And then a silver ladder drops down, and they go in, and um, Trelawney's there, and she's like, someone will die. And uh, you're going to drop that um, uh, the pink teacup, Neville, but please use a blue one when you drop it. And he does drop it, and so everyone's freaking out that she can tell the future. And they're looking at tea leaves, and there's the grim, oh my god, Hermione hates the class. They're back at breakfast the next day. It's done. That was a great job with the first half of the chapter. That's the tea leaves part of the chapter title. I didn't really get to the talons. Yeah. Can you do that part? Sure. I will say in my defense, the chapters are getting longer. The chapters are getting longer, and we will have to strategize about how to do that in the future. Yeah. Three, two, one, go. So Slytherin and Gryffindors have care of magical creatures together. They go down. Hagrid is the teacher and introduces them all to Huffle, to Hippogriffs. Hippogriffs. Thank you. It's $10,000 pyramid, 30-second recap. And Draco gets injured. And Hagrid is really upset because he's like, oh, no, I messed this all up. And Harry, Ron, and Hermione are like, no, you didn't. Draco is faking. And Hagrid is drinking too much. And then he, like, dunks his head in water. And that's it. That was pretty rough on both parts. <laughs> you know, if you if you haven't read this book in a while, you may want to look at the Wikipedia page because we sure as hell didn't help you. <laughs> we'll link to it in our blog post this week. There are so many instances of forgiveness in this chapter, I think. Let's start with the one that you're most excited about. Okay. So I'm most excited about the constant and instantaneous forgiveness that goes on between Hagrid and the trio. The trio is not always able to instantaneously forgive each other, but Hagrid is always instantaneously able to forgive them, and they always instantaneously forgive him. And I don't know what's at the root of it, but Hagrid orders them books that bite them, and the kids are just like, oh, Hagrid. They're not even, like, annoyed. And then Hagrid sort of messes up a little bit by not watching Draco closely enough with the hippogriff. He sort of makes a mess of his first class, but they're completely blind to any even partial mistake that Hagrid made and are just loyal to him and against Draco. They forgive him for drinking too much. There's just so much compassion there. Do you see forgiveness in that or is that love or are those two things sort of inseparable? No, I do think you're right. I think there is a great deal of forgiveness. And I think we learn something about the ability to forgive someone in this relationship because Hagrid realizes he's made some mistakes. He's frustrated himself. That's why he's drinking in in his heart late at night. And he's really fundamentally sorry. And I think it is so much easier to forgive someone if they come to you and say, I am so sorry. I screwed up. Please forgive me. You know, you might you might still be angry for a little while, but hopefully not 30 years. But there's something about Hagrid which 
he's not pretending that he's perfect. He's the first one to admit that he makes mistakes and he's screwed up. He thinks he's going to be fired after this incident. And he gave very clear instructions that you should not insult a hippogriff, which is exactly what Draco does. I mean, he can't be everywhere at the same time. So he may not be blameless. Maybe this was a little too much on your first day and first day of third year. But I think there's something really powerful in the fact that he knows what he's done wasn't quite right. And it's therefore much easier for the trio to forgive him. And in addition, he's so responsive to the trio. Hermione says, I think that you've had enough to drink. And his immediate reaction is yes. And then this attempt to go sober himself up. He goes outside and sticks his head in this trough of freezing cold water. And I'm wondering, I sort of saw that as a baptism or an act of like, self-cleansing and self-forgiveness, because if Hagrid is too self-deprecating and hating himself too much, that begins to get old and hard to forgive also. If someone's default setting is to be like, I know I'm a terrible person, that's not self-reflection, that's self-loathing. Hagrid seems to be right in that sweet spot of knowing he's not perfect and willing to stop self-indulgence. I love that image of seeing him plonking his head into the water as a sort of baptism. Baptism is about a moment of new life. It's about a rebirth, a conversion moment, perhaps. Uh, but, you know, we have ritual baths in Judaism, the mikvah, which is, you know, about ritualizing purity. So I think there's many rituals that can be found, you know, using water to be reborn in some way. And so I love that image. And I love that Hagrid is able to forgive himself, because I think that's something that we should talk about as we think about forgiveness. It's not just relational. It's also with yourself. And I think maybe it's a sign of you know health and well-being when we can notice the things that we've done wrong and forgive ourselves for them, because they don't have to define us. You know, just as we know that's our choices that make us who we are, maybe it's, you know, how much we can forgive ourselves and learn from the mistakes we've made that make us who we are. But let's take those two sentences together because making the choice to forgive yourself is different than just seeing yourself as blameless. Yes. And so it's beautiful when someone forgives themselves because it means that they acknowledge that they messed up and then they are making the choice after some thinking about it to forgive themselves anyways. Whereas where I think I get into trouble is when I don't even notice that I did something wrong. And that's not self-forgiveness. That's just obnoxious. But let me take you to another place in the text where I think we really see that. So one of the things that we learn about hippogriffs, they like to be bowed to before they engage in physical contact, all of that kind of stuff. I think I might be part hippogriff. (laughs) (laughs) But they are also very proud. And I think that that pride makes being forgiving, not only to other people, but to themselves, potentially extremely difficult. Because if you're telling yourself a story of perfection, of achievement, of excellence all of the time, it makes it very difficult to maintain that story and forgive yourself and others. I think it's dangerous to be proud because it makes forgiveness nearly impossible. So I just want to go back to Hagrid, though, because I feel like we haven't covered everything with him. So where else is forgiveness showing up with and around Hagrid? So another thing that I really love about Hagrid is he doesn't blame Buckbeak at all. He could be really mad at this animal for attacking a student. He's not mad at Buckbeak. He's not accusing Draco, right? Like he's not blaming anybody else. 
I guess, again, like, do you think forgiveness is inherent in that? Or do you think he just doesn't see error with anybody except himself? Yeah, I'm not sure that's a good thing. I think this is more about his lack of self-belief. He's so conscious that he doesn't really have the qualifications necessarily for this role. I think there's a lot of doubt in Hagrid. Well, the fact that he is so forgiving of Draco eventually will lead to Buckbeak being on trial. If he were to see that Draco was partially to blame, he might early on be setting a precedent for like, excuse me, I explicitly told the students not to insult the animal. And then Draco went and flat out insulted the animal. So this is not a dangerous animal. This is a hippogriff being a hippogriff. And it almost costs Buckbeak his life. Well, and we see Draco going to the castle, right? He gets Madame Pomfrey to fix up. You know, it's a cut, right? He's clearly hurt. But he is milking this for all it's worth. Madame Pomfrey has regrown bones in a couple of days. She has brought back Lazarus from the dead. And Draco is walking around with bandages. And, like, he is milking this for everything that it's worth. And at that point, if I was Hagrid, I'd want to be like, listen, let me go to Snape. Let me go to Dumbledore and make some things clear. And as I'm saying this, I'm realizing that I have a fundamental question about forgiveness. Because in that situation, I want Hagrid to put some boundaries on the forgiveness. But isn't what makes forgiveness so incredible is that it's not earned? Yes, but can't you have both? So can't you forgive someone for their mistakes but still hold them to a basic standard of behavior? Like if you're raising a child and they – kick their sibling. You can completely forgive them. Siblings are really frustrating. You're only five years old. I understand why you're behaving this way. But still say, but you can't do that anymore. And to make sure that you understand that you can't do that anymore, I'm going to put you in timeout for five minutes. You can forgive someone and not judge them, but still hold them accountable for their actions. And I feel like the accountability is necessary because otherwise hippogriffs get their heads chopped off and kids go around kicking each other. What if Hagrid had complained to Dumbledore? Hogwarts is raising a monster in Draco Malfoy, and that is in part because he's never held to any standard. I feel like you can forgive Draco and understand that he's being raised in a certain way and that he's being raised with affluenza and like all these different struggles that Draco has. I roll my eyes. And you want to raise him to be a good person. I feel like, yeah, I guess I do think there's a boundary not on forgiveness, but on the actions we take. What's maddening to me about this is that Draco is mocking Harry for being weak. Oh, Potter, you're fainting. Are you going to faint? And in the meantime, he has a scratch and is like, I can't move. Somebody needs to point out that he's being a total hypocrite. The text tells us that Draco literally says, I'm dying. I'm dying. Look at me. It's killed me. It is so Shakespearean. Like, he is not letting go of his death scene. He literally says, look at me. It's a great moment of comedy, but it's totally unforgivable in person. (laughs) You know, I'm finding a lot of solace in the Maya Angelou quote, when someone shows you who they are, believe them. Because that's not not forgiving them, but it's saying, I can forgive you and still know you are a poisonous person in my life and I want to hold you at an arm's distance. I almost think forgiveness can be separated 
from boundaries. Just because you've forgiven someone doesn't mean that you have to be best friends with them again. Yes, that I love. Okay, this is super helpful because it allows me not to live with that poison of not forgiving someone, but it doesn't make me drink the poison of the crazy back in my life. Right, exactly. And without getting too far into how complicated it is, a moment that really inspired me in recent history is when some of the victims from the Emanuel Church shooting in Charleston, South Carolina, immediately forgave the shooter. I feel like one way to read what they did was saying, you've already exerted power and oppression in my life by shooting at me and taking loved ones from me. I'm not going to give you more power by hating you. I'm not going to waste my energy hating you. I'm going to forgive you so that you have less power over me. And that doesn't mean, you know, he's not going to be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. It just means they are not giving him the power of hating him. That takes so much energy to be mad at someone. I think that's so true. And at the same time, there's this super complex context, right, that this was a black church and a white shooter and that there was this immediate pressure in some way to forgive, right? And I don't know, it comes in such a long history of racism, right, which we know about. You know, some people are expected to forgive sooner in some way. There are these double standards of forgiveness even. But what I will say, and I think it's interesting that, you know, this was a church community that made that stance so quickly to say we forgive you and and release that power over them, as you say, by hate and anger and fear. I feel like forgiveness doesn't happen easily and we need each other to build that forgiveness muscle. I think that's what I most respect when I think about communities that are super value oriented or faith communities when it's done right is the evidence is in how people live their lives and is how you encounter difficulty and is how you overcome adversity and really like how deep is your well of forgiveness and how tall are your fences when you need to keep people out you know what i mean yeah i mean i had the amazing experience as our listeners know of recently going to germany and as the grandchild of holocaust survivors and you know somebody who really grew up with that being prescient What I so appreciate about the German people is the very honest way in which they will talk about the Holocaust. And I just saw my Auschwitz surviving grandfather yesterday and was telling him about my trip to Germany. And he asked where I went. When I said I went to Durkheim, he was like, oh, isn't it beautiful? I love that at 96, he's not angry in that way at a whole country. And I think you're so right. That has so much to do with the fact that in every single town in Germany, there's just about a Holocaust museum. There is a public atonement for the sins that they committed as a country. You know, that has a real weight. You know, when we talk to German friends our age, right, our generation, who are two generations removed from the Second World War generation, there is a deep awareness, a deep embedded national sense of shame, but shame that hasn't been kept toxic and underground, but that has been unpacked and layer upon layer has been given to the sunlight to transform it in some way. And to bring us to the point where you can take a trip to Germany and share stories and photos, that's what forgiveness looks like ultimately, right? Yeah. And, you know, I was showing my grandfather photos of my trip and I was in a tiny town for most of it. And I showed him the Diedrich Bonhoeffer Center that was in this tiny town. 
And I even talked to people in Germany. I was like, don't you think it's funny that you've built so many shrines to Bonhoeffer, one of the only German citizens who really publicly stood up and tried to assassinate Hitler and died for it? And my friend said, no, actually, I think that we're building, we're not trying to erase our past in any way. We're trying to say to our children, we want to raise you to be Bonhoeffers. So I guess even though I would like to think that I wouldn't be walking around with anger 60 years after the Holocaust anyway, I'll never know because I feel as though Germany has extended such a hand of apology that we don't see that same hand of apology being reached out to indigenous people in America, to African-Americans, to all of the different cultural things that have happened here. So, yeah, there's, there's a fine balance between not wanting to hold on to anger and yet holding people accountable. Casper, tell me somewhere else. Please help me get out of Holocaust land. Vanessa, a big part of this chapter is all about Trelawney. Like, how is forgiveness showing up with her? I have so many questions about Trelawney. I think that Trelawney is sort of one-third truth future seer, one-third just complete huckster, and one-third confused about the difference. There's something con artisty about her, right? But then there are moments where I'm like, I'm unclear as to what's going on. For example, when she tells Neville ahead of time, you know, you're going to break the teacup. So next time, please grab a teacup that I don't like as much. So is she creating that circumstance where Neville then gets nervous and breaks the teacup? Or does she actually see things? And that whole ecosystem of Trelawney's subject and the way that she goes about doing it is really complicated to me. And, you know, some of the students are completely forgiving of when she gets things wrong, right? There are times where she has to blatantly get things wrong. Harry doesn't die. And Lavender and Pavardi completely forgive Trelawney those mistakes and look at her with very forgiving eyes and justify her missteps. Pavardi and Lavender want to believe in divination, so they are forgiving of when Trelawney missteps. Hermione wants to think divination is bupkis, so she is unforgiving of all of it. When the truth is something in the middle, the truth is that Trelawney does have the sight to some extent, right? We find out later that she is capable of being possessed and making real predictions. And she makes some uncanny predictions. But I think that people's reactions to her start with like a general, um, I am more willing to forgive Hugh Jackman because I think he's handsome and I'm predisposed to like him, that I am willing to forgive Joe Schmo. That to me is really interesting because I think what you're helping me understand is that it's much easier to forgive people if it doesn't challenge our worldview. If we can stay within the comfort of what we already thought and you just screwed up a little, fine. Like I'm not giving up anything. If I have to forgive you and that challenges some core assumptions about what's true and not true, that is much harder to do. Right. And Hermione would have to forgive a teacher for not really knowing their subject and being completely rigorous and completely by the book. I think that Trelawney crosses Hermione by saying some people just aren't going to be skilled at this and you can't teach yourself it from books. And that's terrifying for Hermione. Hermione's like, that is unacceptable to me. And so starts just poking holes in everything Trelawney does. She's a completely unforgiving view of Trelawney. And I think potentially misses out on 
the more mysterious parts of magic, which we'll see later with her relationship with Luna Lovegood. I think that, sure, a lot of what Trelawney does is unethical and sort of weird and pseudoscience. But I think Hermione is selling herself short by being so unforgiving of Trelawney. The other question that's raised for me with Trelawney is that we know that she does have a gift of sight, right? She is a seer. There are certain prophecies that she has been a sort of channel for. And, you know, at some level, Dumbledore is willing to forgive all of the dreadful, tacky teaching and the weird living in the tower thing. And the alcoholism. Right. Like, there's plenty to be concerned about. But he is willing to forgive all of that because of this core talent, which raises the question for me of, like... If someone has a skill that is so valuable, should we forgive them all the other difficulties? And I'm thinking of of, of places like Bletchley Park, right? The famous code-breaking manor, you know, the big house in England where the Allies successfully decoded some of the Nazi communications. You know, some of those people who were wizards at math and breaking codes were incredibly difficult to work with. And do you forgive people when they have that kind of genius? Or do we say... No, I'm unwilling to withstand this kind of frustrating experience, and I will miss out on your genius. I mean, it's such a personal question. Our beloved Stephanie Paulsell gave me the great insight once. I went to her with a question about a relationship, and I said, is this okay that this is happening in this relationship? And she said, you know, does it bother you? I was like, no, but I feel like my friends think it's weird. And she was like, doesn't matter if it's okay or not. What matters is it doesn't bother you. So I think that it's the same thing. You know, it depends on the context. It's like, yeah, I would be able to stand a lot of unpleasantness if somebody was breaking Nazi code, right? I would be able to take it. But if somebody is just trying to, like, clear my computer cache, I probably wouldn't be as forgiving. That makes total sense to me. And I think Trelawney ultimately validates Dumbledore's decision. I wonder if she does. But that's a question for book five. I look forward to it. Vanessa, it's time for our spiritual practice, and we are doing Pardes again. And we've been practicing over the last couple of weeks, so I'm hoping we're going to get better as we go. So I love meeting Sir Cadogan, Sir Cadogan. I take Cadogan. Cadogan. I like it. That sounds Welsh. I'm sure that's what it was supposed to be. And he is just comedy gold at the beginning of this chapter. He says, What villains are these that trespass upon my private lands, come to scorn at my fall, perchance? I just love him and his language. So anyway, the phrase that I've picked out of his many comic moments, it's this one. Draw, you knaves, you dogs. I love the word knaves. It's so good. So as we start our journey into Pardes, let's remind ourselves that the first level to think about is pshat. So what's happening in the text in a kind of direct meaning way? What's literally going on? What's on the surface? So what's happening literally in this part of the story is that Harry, Ron, and Hermione are looking for the North Tower. They're looking to go to to the divination classroom. And they've come across this painting who... Sarkadagan's sword is stuck and, you know, he's trying to pull it out and it's not working. And he's insulted that these three are just standing there kind of looking at him. So he's challenging them and he's he's shouting at them. What's going to happen very soon afterwards is that they'll ask him the way to find the classroom. And he says, a quest! And he gets very excited and he's going to help them. So it's this interesting moment where this magical figure that potentially could be dangerous actually is about to become a friend and ally. 
So as we think about the second step in Pades Remes, we're looking for hints, you know, hints of deeper meaning, allegoric or symbolic meaning that is beyond just this literal reading. So as you hear this phrase, draw you knaves, you dogs, what do you think of? So the word draw is interesting because he's a drawing, but he's also asking them. I mean, it's all that he is. He's a knight, so you have to draw your sword, but it's also his identity. I like that. Help me. What did you get? Well, I'm looking at the word knaves, and it's, of course, spelt K-N-A-V-E-S. And just the K-N lettering reminds me of the word knight, which, of course, he is a knight. He's Sir Cadogan. And no wonder he's excited about meeting the three of them as they're on a quest, because they really are on a quest. And the whole point of a knight is that you go out to search for the Holy Grail, right, in Arthurian legend. So there's something about them seeking truth, seeking valor, seeking honor. You know, that's very much this honor code is what he's basing his challenge on. I don't know, there's something that elevates the task of these three students looking for a classroom to really be about much bigger than that. They are looking for truth. They are looking for justice. And I I love that, just in that little hint of a word. Yeah, and in Arthurian legend, the way that Arthur finds out that he is supposed to lead the Knights of the Round Table is by pulling a sword out of somewhere that it's stuck, right? And we meet Sir Cadogan, and he's trying to pull a sword out. Well, and I love that because he's not able to pull it out, maybe he realizes that he is not the one to lead, that he should follow and help these three students. So let's go to the next layer. As we think about Drush, this is the inquiring level. So we're really we're seeking for something either through similar occurrences or something even in the design of the letters, perhaps. What's beyond not only the symbolic, but what's really traceable in the text for us here? So just one more time, draw, you knaves, you dogs. So dogs seem to play an interesting part in Harry Potter, right? We have Fluffy, the three-headed dog, in the first book. We have Fang. Then we have Sirius walking around as a dog. And then very quickly after Sir Cadogan calls Harry, Ron, and Hermione, you dogs, Harry is about to see the Grimm up in his teacup, which is a dog, a big black dog. Well, not only dogs, but also knights. You know, as we think about other knights that show up in the story, especially in the castle, we've got the bloody baron, we've got nearly headless Nick, we've got that whole death day party full of knights on the headless hunt. You know, and all of them are castle characters, if we can call them that, right? There are the paintings or ghosts or something that, that is not of the uh, of the muggle world, shall we put it. And in fact, if we think about it, so are the dogs right? There's Fluffy, magical creature. There's the Grim, which is the symbol. There's Fang. Well, maybe Fang is the most earthly of all of them. But I don't know. There's, there's something for me that's making a bridge between the muggle and the magical world through things that we know from our own stories and culture. I'm not quite sure where that takes me, but this is the hint I'm hearing. Or is it saying that there's something magical about dogs? So, Vanessa, we're coming up to the secret the sewed. So this is the bit where we have to try and listen to the mystery. Like what is beyond the text, beyond analysis, beyond rationale, like what mysterious message do we receive? I think the message here is that art should challenge us. This is a piece of art that is challenging the kids. 
Well, it's not just challenging, it's really speaking and it's interrupting, right? Like this is not a nice painting that the three of them have stopped at in a gallery. This is a piece of everyday furniture that's kind of interrupting them, but can ultimately end up super helping them on their journey. So I feel like this is sort of a case for public art that should be in the middle of the road or like something that totally doesn't make practical sense. And I mean, just a few sentences before what you read to us, it says that even though Harry was now used to the fact that, you know, the paintings in Hogwarts moved, he still was just enchanted by it, right? He's still so charmed by it. And I think that's also true about art is that if it's good art, you can, you know, see it a hundred times and it still speaks to you. This week's voicemail is from Selena Mahmoud. Hey, Vanessa and Casper. I love the podcast. Thank you guys so much. Lots of love from Lahore, Pakistan. And I've been thinking about the Dementors. So Lupin tells Harry that the Dementors affect him, not because he's weak, but because of his past. And then later on, when Fudge is telling the others about how the Dementors like don't affect Sirius at all, I was thinking about that and why that was, because... He has a pretty traumatic past. I mean, Sirius for me is one of those tragic characters in the book who just have one bad thing after another come to them with absolutely no justice to speak of. There's this quote from The Book Thief where Death says, He does something to me, that boy. He breaks my heart. He makes me want to cry. And that quote always reminds me of Sirius Black. Um, so yeah, but the Dementors don't affect him at all. And I was wondering if that's because he has some sort of inner chocolate or something that just keeps him going. Um, yeah, I was just wondering what your thoughts on that are. Thanks, guys. Selena, I love that you have created the idea of like some inner chocolate. That That's my new favorite concept. But that is such a good question. And you know what? I don't think I have an answer. So I'm going to stick with this question as we as we really get to know Sirius through these next few pages. Casper, now is the time that we get to bless someone. Whom would you like to bless? My blessing this week is for George Weasley. You know, they're reflecting on the experience they had in the train with Dementors. And, and Harry feels so much shame. You know, so much of his strength and masculinity is being challenged by the fact that he fainted. And George says, you know, I wasn't too happy myself. And he really acknowledges the hurt and the fear and the just the horrible experience that it was and makes it okay, or at least tries to make it okay for Harry to, you know, felt maybe embarrassed by his experience. So I guess my blessing is for anyone who is willing to lead with vulnerability and to show that being scared isn't bad. And in fact, it's what makes us human in some way. So my blessing is for George. How about you, Vanessa? My blessing is for Lavender and Pavardi. I just want to give a blessing to anyone who is in that early romance with a new idea. It's so exciting when you discover a new kind of music or a new subject that really interests you and you just sort of go deep into a hole of like being so excited about a new subject. And I'm just so excited for them. And I feel like they get portrayed as silly a lot because they're juxtaposed with the serious Hermione. But these are studious young women who are excited by a new subject. And I offer my blessing to them. 
You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Join us at one of our live shows in Philadelphia, New York City, Washington, D.C., Portland, Seattle, San Francisco, and L.A. Oh, my God, we're going to travel so much and have so much fun. We'd love to see you there. Tickets are at harrypottersecrettext.com. Just click on the big orange button. Next week, we will be reading Chapter 7, The Bogart in the Wardrobe Through the Theme of Humor. This episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is produced by Ariana Nettleman, Casper Turkile, and me. Vanessa Zoltan. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull, and we are part of the Panoply Network. You can find ours and other great podcasts at panoply.fm. This week, we have a very exciting moment. Our producer wants to say something real quick. Ariana? Our crowdfunder contributor of the week is my beloved friend, Hannah McGinty. So, so much thanks to her. Our voicemail this week is from Selena Mahmoud. Thanks also to Rebecca and Charlie Ledley and to Stephanie Purcell. We'll see you all next week. Bye. I like that you were like, yes, that is obnoxious. (laughs) (laughs) By the way, here's a list of the things you've done wrong, all jelly bean related. You know I like making lists.